0: Well, in May 1846, a long time ago, a group of pioneers left Independence, Missouri by wagon train. They were heading out west to California on a trip that would normally take between four to six months. Could you imagine that, by the way? Taking a trip just halfway across the country and and knowing it was going to take half of the year to get there? That's what they did. But when this group of families, which included many children, got about halfway they got to uh, the southwest corner of wyoming to a place called fort bridger they met a man named lansford hastings and mr hastings convinced this group convinced the leaders of the families of these groups that if they were to get off of the established trail they were following this the, the well established oregon trail at that point if they were to get off of the trail and follow this shortcut that he had Recently, come up with, they could save themselves a significant amount of time and a significant amount of trouble. And so the pioneers, hearing Mr. Hastings' ideas, decided that they would try Hastings' cutoff. What they didn't know was that it was an untested trail. Hastings had only actually gone part way on his own trail that he had mapped out and didn't really know the full uh, length of the journey, didn't know all of the different terrain and the dangers that would face them. And so having gone off on this cutoff, it ended up taking them an extra 30 days to cross. And it cost them dearly in supplies. It cost them in the lives of their animals. It cost them in equipment losses due to steep terrain they were crossing over the Wasatch Mountains of Utah of, uh, of arid desert, vast stretches of desert that they were having to cross where there was no grass for the animals, no water for the animals, let alone water for themselves. And so by the time they got through that pass and reached the last 100 mile portion of their trip, which was the most difficult portion yet, they were depleted before they could even get started. They were depleted in their energy. They were depleted in their supplies. And unseasonably heavy snows were about to hit them and they didn't know that. And all of this led to a tragic outcome. An unspeakably tragic outcome. They couldn't make it over that final pass. And so you've probably heard of this group of individuals. Of the 87 members who were originally a part of what became known as the Donner Party, only 48 survived to reach California. So here's the moral of that story. Crooked paths can be dangerous if not deadly. Crooked paths can be dangerous, if not deadly. That's the message that Paul is trying to get across to us through Timothy as he writes this section of Scripture this morning. I want you to look down at it again. Paul's instructing Timothy here in the beginning of verse 8 to remind the church, remind them, of these things, he says. So what things are we talking about? Well, primarily... What he said back in verse 8 when he began this section. Flip back over to verse 8. He says, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel. Timothy, remind the church of this, of Christ, of the gospel. Paul wants Timothy and the church to be reminded that when it comes to reading or learning from or teaching God's word, There's a straight path that leads to life through Christ and the Gospel. And there's a crooked path that misses the mark and causes great harm. He's saying, Timothy, you can either cut a a straight path, stay on a tested path that gets right towards the, the right destination, or like the Donner Party expedition, you can, you can take a shortcut that veers you way off course and on a trajectory that ultimately leads to death. The stakes are high. So, Timothy, these next verses are for Timothy to, be, to remind us of these things. What Paul is saying here is when it comes to reading, learning, teaching the Word of God, when it comes to how we approach this book, the Bible that's been delivered to us by the prophets and the apostles, there's a right way and there's a wrong way. And so the first section of the text here is Paul is saying to Timothy, when it comes to reading, learning, and teaching in the Bible, you're doing it wrong if... verse 14 Again, remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Look down to verse 16. Avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. And among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They're upsetting the faith of some. So you're doing it wrong, Timothy. You're doing it wrong, church, if like these men and like what's happening in the church, you're you're getting all caught up in babble. In meaningless words. In irreverent talk that steers away from Christ and the Gospel. It seems that this is what was going on here. There's some deadly intrusion into the church here again. This is the church in Ephesus. And Paul says it's threatening to spread like gangrene. Do you know what gangrene is? We don't, we don't really see that or hear about that much in modern society anymore, but it's, it's this insidious disease that just eats away your flesh, right? He said that's what's happening here. It's like, it's spreading like, like this, and it has to do with this false teaching which frequently presents itself as a major concern in the early church. If you read through these New Testament epistles, this is a constant struggle in the church is that there's false teaching that just keeps creeping in and and infecting God's people, infecting the church, spreading like gangrene, just as it does today. It's a common problem in the early church because it's a common problem in every church. This is a key issue for the apostles Paul identifies this threat here in in in, in sort of the broad category of quarreling about words and irreverent babble, right? That's the broad category he's getting at. But then he gives a specific example. He says some are saying that the resurrection has already happened. So he's identifying a specific way that this quarreling about words in Babel is infecting the church. And so because this same threat of quarreling about words still exists, it will always exist, in the church. I think it would be good to examine together how does that happen? How does how do these things manifest themselves? And there's a couple key categories that tend to pop up when people either inadvertently, which happens, or sometimes intentionally, which unfortunately also happens, approach God's word incorrectly. Okay? So, the next few minutes I just want to give you all some some kind of helpful uh, lenses to look through. How do you how do we know when we're doing it wrong? How are we putting ourselves in danger of missing the mark of the gospel? And here's the first category. It's when we major on the minors. Majoring on the minors. And what I mean by majoring on the minors is I mean when we get all worked up about a a non-essential doctrine and we turn it into an essential one. So we look at scripture, we find doctrines that are that are not essential doctrines, but we and we decide no, they are essential, and we've got to make sure that 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 we and everybody else looks at this in a in a, as an essential doctrine and get all all keyed in and focused on this secondary issue. G. G. K. Chesterton, who who was a, a brilliant British thinker uh, and, and writer, said this. Uh, this is you know in the in the in the late part of the nineteenth century, but he says a fad or a heresy. A fad or a heresy is the exaltation of something when, which even if true, is secondary or temporary in its nature against those things which are essential and eternal. Those things which, are, which always prove themselves true in the long run. In short, he says, it's the setting up of the mood against the mind which I think is a really helpful way of looking at this. He's saying that we see these kind of fads pop up where people tend to major on the minors because they're setting up the mood, their mood over the mind. In other words, they're not thinking rightly about what is and isn't essential. They're being carried away by the emotional current of the day or some, something that excites them and they just run after it and turn it into something that it ought not to be. So here's the big question, of course. How do we distinguish between essential doctrines and non-essential doctrine? Or another way to to say that would be, how do we distinguish between primary and secondary issues in the Scriptures? It's a really important question, right? It's a really important question. And before we attempt to answer it, I think it's important to affirm this. All biblical doctrine is good. All biblical doctrine is important. In fact, if we look over, probably on the same page that you're already on, in chapter 3, verse 16, we know this very familiar verse. All Scripture, all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So all Scripture, all doctrine is good and important, right? So having said that, let's, let's still key in a little bit to answer our question, how do we discern between essential and non-essential doctrine? We must ask this. Which doctrines, which teachings, if lost or if completely uh, disagreed upon within the life of the church would threaten to destroy the faith? What if, what doctrines, if we lost this particular understanding of truth, it would destroy the faith? Or it would destroy the message of the Gospel itself? And which doctrines, on the other hand, although important, could be disagreed upon without destroying the Gospel. So again, we're, we're first and foremost to remember Christ right, as preached in my Gospel, Paul says. So what things will completely wreck that? And what other things could we disagree on and not, not lose the Gospel? So if, you, if you're going to make a list, and, and I haven't made a comprehensive one, but I, I think this might be helpful at least as you, as you think about that. Essential doctrines, things that we cannot lose, would have to include such truths as the authority and the inerrancy of God's Word. Right? If we can't trust this, then we have, we, none of the doctrines that we're going to look at matter, right? So, so that, an essential would have to be the authority and the inerrancy of, of God's Word. Another essential would have to be the deity of Christ. Is Jesus truly God in the flesh? Is He the Son of God? Is He God? That's an essential doctrine. The centrality of the cross. What did He accomplish there? Why is that fundamentally important to what it means to to be a Christian, to understand the Gospel? It is because of His death for our sin, right? I would say the necessity of faith. And even salvation by faith. I would say the, the necessity of a transformed life by the power of the Spirit. That when Jesus saves us, we're actually made, remade into new people. That, that there will be on the last day you know, those who stand before the Lord Jesus and say, we did all these things in Your name. And they'll say, but I never knew You. The sovereignty of God over all things. These are things that are right at the center, right? You lose those, and we lose it all. Whereas secondary doctrines might include things like the nature and the exercise of spiritual gifts. We might say it's essential for us to believe that the Holy Spirit indwells His people, and that He gifts His people for ministry, for the edification of one another. But we might disagree about what gifts are given, how they're practiced, right? And we can, yet we can still fellowship together around the centrality of the Gospel, even though we might disagree on that. We might disagree about the timing of certain things regarding the end times. Right? Jesus is coming back. That's an essential doctrine. When is He coming back? How is He coming back? Not, not essential. How about the mode and the timing of baptism? We're a Baptist church. We have a particular view of of baptism by immersion, baptism by my profession of faith. We're credo Baptists, right? But there are those who are paedo Baptists who would say baptism is a covenant expression that I can baptize my my children under that covenant even though they haven't made that profession of faith. And while well, I might say, well, I disagree with you on that, I wouldn't say you're not a Christian, right? So non-essential versus essential. Doctrines. These, these are things again that can be disagreed upon, and they often are without compromising the core message of the gospel. Now, here's the thing. If someone were to say to you, and this actually happened to me this week, I got a, an email from some guy that I don't even know who, who made a lot of accusations towards me that were, that sounded like this. If you don't speak in tongues and you don't perform miracles like healings, then you haven't truly received the Holy Spirit. And by the way, you all, according to this individual's email, are just sheep, lazy sheep that I've led astray. Or if someone were to say, if you aren't a dispensational pre tribulation rapture premillennialist in regards to your understanding of the end times, you can't really be a biblical Christian. We'd have a situation where quarreling over words would seriously disrupt the faith of some, right? You have to be this in order to be right before God. That would ruin people. How? Well, if I haven't ever spoken in tongues, and and by the way, I have not, Okay, then I might be tempted to question my salvation based on what that other person might be telling me about my condition of not being filled with the Spirit. Or if I just can't see in Scripture anything that would lead me to a clear understanding of dispensational, pre tribulational, premillennialism, and I haven't, <laughs> um, I might be accused by some of denying a literal reading of the Bible. And therefore, at least as they see it, would have reason to doubt my faith or doubt my relationship with God. Do right? you understand how that that becomes wrecking faith ruining people causing harm in the church and I want to come back to to what the key issue is in all of that i hope I hope you're already beginning to understand what the key issues are there but but before I get there i want to, i want to talk a little bit about how how does that happen like why does those quarreling over words how does that even come about why do we do that and I want to talk a little bit about a couple of specific ways that at least I've seen and I think they're they're pretty accurately broadly applied to the church. The first one is is that we just we're really good at irresponsible word studying. We're just we let me let me let me flip that around because that was a little bit sarcastic how I said it. We're really bad sometimes at the way we do word studies. Irresponsible word studies. It's a common hermeneutical mistake and 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 here's how it happens we we take a, a kind of a, a modern approach a scientific approach if you will to the way that we we study texts and we try to figure out what does this specific greek word mean or what does this specific hebrew word mean and we we kind of approach it like a like like a dictionary definition that we're trying to determine usually we do that out of context of the passage that we found the word in And then we take that definition and we just sort of broadly apply it to every use of that word in the Bible. So if it means this here, it means this there, it means this there. And when that happens, we can introduce major error. Now I want to say this, don't get me wrong, there's a place for biblical word studies. But what's happened is, especially in in the modern era, there are movements that have taken the practice too far and have done a, just a real disservice to biblical interpretation. And that's where doctrinal error can slip in. And this is what was happening here. Look back down at the text. This is what was specifically happening in Ephesus. Paul calls out two men here, Hymenaeus and Philetus. And he says, look, they're, they're false teachers in the church. What were they doing? They were teaching that the resurrection had already happened, he says. And what does that mean? What's what, what going on there? It means they were denying a physical resurrection in favor of a spiritualized understanding of resurrection. So they were not only denying a physical resurrection for you and for me, like when Jesus comes back, we're going we're to rise, we're going to be reunited with our physical bodies. They're saying, no, 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 no. That's not what that means. It's just a spiritual thing, and it's already happened. The problem with that is though that 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 only denies our physical resurrection, but it it likely denies Christ's physical resurrection. And although Paul doesn't give specific details about exactly how this teaching was happening, we can be sure that in, in Ephesus, Timothy and the church, they knew what these two guys were doing. They were hearing the teaching. And we can venture a good guess as to what was probably happening. The confusion probably stemmed from bad word study. And, and if you look at Paul's earlier writings, which they would have probably been very familiar with, specifically around the idea of baptism, in Romans chapter 6, for example, Paul writes this. He says, we were buried therefore with Him by baptism into death. Did you catch the, the past tense there? We were buried with Him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So they're saying, see, baptism is like a, is a symbolic, is, a, is an identification in a spiritual sense of death with Christ. And therefore, resurrection is that same spiritual unity with Him in the way that we live and walk in this newness of life. In reading those verses, you could get the idea that since baptism is just symbolic in a spiritual way, that too, resurrection would be symbolic in just a spiritual way. You can see how they could interpret that and then apply that to every, every instance of resurrection in the New Testament. They could just say, oh yeah, it's spiritual. It's a spiritual. It's not physical. Colossians chapter 3, Paul similarly there says, if you have been raised with Christ, if you pass tense, if you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. He says, Set your mind on things that are above, not on the earth, for you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Spiritual symbols there of death and resurrection with Christ. And so they're saying, see? That's what it means. And, 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 and it's already happened. It's not physical. It's spiritual. And here's the problem. The problem is that that word study, that way of approaching the text completely ignores the fact that both in Romans and in Colossians as well as numerous other passages, numerous other apostolic writings clearly tell us of a physical resurrection that's coming. They don't speak of it always in terms of a spiritual reality, but as a future physical reality. Most notably, in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says there, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there's no resurrection from the dead? If there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. Our faith is in vain. We are found to be misrepresenting God. Because we've testified about God that He raised Christ whom He did not raise. If this is true, then the dead are not raised. And if the dead are not raised, not even Christ is raised. And if Christ is not raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. That, that's a pretty clear and condemning rebuke here from Paul saying it's physical, people. That's our hope. Our hope is in fact that It's physical. And that's where the danger lies. If there's no physical resurrection, then Christ didn't rise physically from the grave. And if He didn't, death won. Death had the final say. He didn't defeat it. You're still going to die in your sin and there's no Gospel. And all this danger in the church in Ephesus stemmed from a couple of guys introducing grave error by proof-texting in order to support their own ideas rather than faithfully examining the apostolic message in its totality to properly understand the bigger picture of God's Word. Now, like I said, this happens all too often. And it happens because we forget the most important rule. Okay? Write this down. If you're a note-taker, write this down. The most important rule in reading, learning, and teaching from the Bible. Here it is context matters context 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 word studies go awry because we don't evaluate words within their context if you think about this it makes sense words on their own actually have no meaning apart from context none context matters. And not only do we fail to to, to read words within the context of the passage that they've been written in, but we too often fail to read the passage within the context of its own chapter and book and fail to read that chapter and book within the context of the whole Bible, which is written to us as a cohesive message. And that can produce major theological error. That's the kind of thing that was happening here. And here's the other thing. Sometimes it doesn't produce major theological error, but it just produces what, what we might call this, missing the forest for the trees. And so you may be not going off on to, to, to big error, but you might still be missing the point because you're so keyed in on word studies and just trying to figure out what this means or that means that you, you, again, you miss the forest. You miss the big picture of the Gospel. I once sat in on a Bible study where this happened. There was, it, was a, it was a Bible study of the Psalms. I wasn't the leader of the group. I was just sitting in on the, on the study. And there, there, there was this word that was used uh, in the English translation just talking about David being prostrate before the Lord. It was talking about his position uh, you know of how he approached God in prayer, and the the Bible study and the Bible study leader launched into a fifteen minute debate. I kid you not. About the meaning of the word prostrate, did it mean he was sitting down? Did it mean he was on his knees? Did it mean he was on his face? And and they argued about that idea for fifteen minutes. And at the end of that, I was like, guys. What are we doing? That is not the point of the passage. <laughs> Who cares if he was on his knees, on his face, or seated in a chair? The point is, he was bowing before the Lord. Let's find out why. Maybe you've heard preaching that does that. I've tried really hard not to be that kind of a preacher. So I hope you don't hear it often here. But I was actually brought up under preaching that did this, where you look at a passage like, like let's say, Romans 8, at the end of Romans 8, those who, who we've called, you know, he predestined, he justified, he glorified, right? And so, so, so it might be common to take a passage like that and want to launch into a six week series defining the systematic theological significance of words like justification, glorification, predestination, and whatnot. Now, is there a place for that? Sure. If you're writing a systematic theology textbook, go for it. right? If you're teaching people in the church concepts like justification, that's fine. We should do that. Again, all Scripture is profitable. But that's not the point of Romans 8. The point of Romans 8 is to remind God's people in the midst of their hardship and suffering in the midst of their in th- of their own confusion because of false teaching about what the Gospel is, that here's the Gospel. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He's fulfilled the law. His Spirit is now in you. You've been set free from that. Set free to life in Christ because of what He's done. And we still live in this broken world. And it's groaning and it's waiting for the, the appearance of Christ and the, and the restoration of all things. And as you suffer through that, here's what you need to know. Christ is for you. Who can be against you? Right? Nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Nothing. And here's why. Because before the foundation of time, you were predestined to be called and glorified. That's the point. The Gospel is in that message. So what's the big deal? What's the key problem in all this? Here's the key problem. When we key in on the trees instead of the forest, we learn to treat the Bible as a theological reference book. Kind of like a, a, a dictionary or kind of like an index of doctrines. And so you're, the way that you would approach Scripture is you might say, well, I'm, I'm, I'm curious about this particular issue. Let me do a, a quick word study and let me just find out the ways that it's... And we treat it like a reference book. Like, a, like a reference book, Like an encyclopedia. Rather than understanding that that's not the idea of the Bible. The idea of the Bible is that it is a cohesive story with a singular main idea. That's what the Word of God is. So having said that, here's where we need to turn to the second idea, the second point here. When it comes to reading and learning and teaching from God's Word, you're doing it right if... verse 15. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved. You're doing it right. In other words, he's saying. A worker who has no need to be ashamed. Rightly handling the Word of Truth. Now, here's, here's where this becomes a really helpful illustration. The, the English translation there is a little bit... A little bit um, clunky. What he's saying there literally in rightly handling the word is he's using, he's using language in Greek that, that's kind of speaking more about the way you'd build a road or a path. And he's saying, cut a straight path in the way that you approach the word of God. Cut a straight path, build a straight road. The Romans were known for this, by the way. They were known for for straight roads. And so there's this illusion. Paul's in Rome when he's writing this. There's this illusion I think that's going on in his mind. Straight roads, Timothy. Straight roads. Straight roads to where? To what I've been talking about this whole time. Remember, remind the church of these things. Christ and the Gospel. Cut a straight path to it. Don't get off on words which derail some, which get into... Needless and irreverent quabbling cut a straight path to the gospel. That's how you rightly handle the word of God. It's to remember that Jesus taught his disciples, Jesus taught his disciples that the Bible was about him. You remember that after the resurrection, Jesus appears to his disciples on the road to Emmaus and it says, In beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Luke 24-27. The Bible, he's saying, it points somewhere, guys. It points to me. And Paul's saying, make a straight road there. That's how you rightly handle the Word of God. This is what the apostles handed down. Everything points to Christ and the Gospel. Now let me explain a little bit about what that means and what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that we need to look for Jesus under every rock in Scripture. okay? Don't take that literally in that sense. It doesn't mean that we ignore supporting doctrines. Again, the Bible is full of secondary kinds of doctrines, right? And they're important ones. But it does mean this. It means that we must rightly recognize that supporting doctrines are there in fact to support something. What are they there to support? That something is the overarching meta narrative of God's redemptive plan for humanity that finds its culmination and fulfillment in the birth, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. The entire Bible is about the Lord Jesus Christ. The Old Testament says he's coming, the Gospels say he's here. The book of Acts proclaim Him. The epistles explain Him. And Revelation says He's coming again. That's the Bible in a nutshell. The book is about Him. The very first verse of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We know that it is the Lord Jesus Christ who was God's agent in creation because John 1.3 says all things were made through Him and without Him was not anything made that was made. And in Colossians 1.16 it says, all things are from Him and by Him and for Him. And then we get to the last verse of the Bible, Revelation 22, verse 21, and it says, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. And that's where it ends. The bookends around the entire Bible are focused on Jesus. The Bible is a hymn book. Not H-Y-M-N, but H-I-M. It's about Him. It's about the Lord Jesus Christ. So, Paul's saying to Timothy, that's what was delivered to you. Cut a straight path. Church, you need to be reminded of things. When you read the Bible, as you're learning from the Bible, as you may be in situations where you would teach the Bible, you're doing it wrong... <laughs> If you get off on all these quabblings and secondary things, cut a straight path to Jesus. That's what it's about. Now what's at stake? What's at stake? Look how he ends this passage there in verse 19. Actually, look again at the, the very end of verse 18. He says, They are upsetting the faith of some. They're upsetting the faith of some, those who are doing it wrong. But. God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. The Lord knows who are His and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. I love what he does here. Because he's reminding us something that's true. He's saying the firm foundation of the Lord stands. In other words, that firm foundation is the the Word of God itself. And the foundation... Of the church as it receives the word of God is the prophets and the apostles, right? So that's how God's word was delivered to us through the prophets and the apostles. That's how the church was founded. And he's saying that foundation stands. So we can have this confidence God's not going to let the gangrene ruin the truth, right? But he also does something else at saying that, which is really kind of clever. <laughs> He's quoting scripture. Those two phrases there are quotes out of Numbers 16. And here's what happened in Numbers 16. Numbers 16 was a uh, there, there's there's sort of a headline around that section of scripture that's called the Rebellion of Korah. And this was back in, in, in the days of Moses, back when the Israelites were wandering around in the desert. And this guy Korah, who is a, he a he's a he's a leader in, in the assembly of people. He gathers together a whole bunch of other people who are upset that Moses and Aaron have been elevated to positions of of leadership and authority. Now, who elevated them to that position? God did, right? Moses is the prophet. The the early parts of the Bible are written by Moses. That's how God's Word came to His people. But these guys come up, and Korah in particular and saying, You know, why have you made such a big deal out of yourself? Why have you elevated yourself as holy? We're all holy. What makes you any better than the rest of us? And so disheartened by that, Moses says he says he bows his face before the Lord and he says to this guy, let's we'll find out. We'll let the Lord decide who are his people, who belongs to him, and who doesn't. And the the long story short was that Korah and these 250 other leaders who wanted to kind of tamp down the authority of the prophetic Word of God through Moses, were judged the next day because they all stood before God and said, okay, God, show us who's the leader here. Show us who's uh, who's, uh, your prophet and who's not. And God destroyed all of those false people. And so Paul is reminding us of that. The foundation stands and the Lord knows who are His. So what's at stake? Our salvation is at stake. The safety of God's people are at stake. Judgment is at stake. If you get the Gospel wrong, if we get the Word of God wrong, we're leading people on a crooked path away from the proper destination and on a trajectory towards death. And God cares about His people too much to allow anyone to derail them on a path that leads to death. He won't tolerate it. And so if we find ourselves among those who are wrongly handling the Word of God and causing harm to the people of God, God will judge that. I firmly believe that those will be the people who stand before the Lord on that last day and He'll say, I never knew you. Depart from Me. Turning from the message of God delivered through His appointed messengers, the prophets and the apostles leads us away from truth into man's error, missing the Gospel, leading to death. So here again, remember the, the, the point here is that we're, we're trying to understand how we rightly handle the Word. When, when Word studies or secondary doctrines lead us not towards those central truths of the Gospel, but away, what happens is we can be tempted to believe that our faith, that our right standing before God, that our salvation depends not on what Christ has done for us, but rather on what we've done for ourselves. Oh, I've found that little truth. I've, I've, I've ordered my life around this really important issue. I have received the, the, the Spirit in this particular way or, or interpreted the Bible in this particular way. I have, I've figured it out. I've made my right standing before God. I have blah, 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 blah. And we miss entirely the Gospel. Paul says, no, remember Christ. He entered this world born of a virgin. He lived a sinless and perfect life. He lived the life that you and I could never live. And His perfect righteousness is what is credited to our account when we believe upon Christ. He alone was qualified to go to the cross. And it was there that He was lifted up to die on that cross on our behalf. God transferred the sin of all people who would ever believe upon Him to Christ on that cross. And He transferred all the sin. All the judgment. And Him who knew no sin, God made to be sin for us. He suffered and bled and died upon that cross. He gave His life that you and I might have life. He shed His blood to make the only atonement for our sin. He was the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And they took Him down from that cross after having made atonement for sinners and they buried Him in a borrowed tomb. But on the third day, He was raised from the dead. And He entered the glory of the Father That day by His ascension, He was now seated at the right hand of God the Father. And the Bible says, whoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. You must believe in this One who suffered upon Calvary's cross. He suffered the wrath of God in your place. Those of whom He bore their sin. And again, He's now entered into glory. And if we commit our lives to this Jesus Christ, By faith, here's our hope. He will take us into glory one day when he returns or when you die. There is salvation in no other name, for there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. There's one God and one mediator between God and man, the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave his life a ransom for many. That's the Gospel. And if we commit our life to Jesus, if we deny ourselves, if we take up our cross and become a follower of Him, we we stop trying to to figure out how are we going to do this and maintain this on our own, but rather we recognize that it is by Christ and Him alone that our hope is found. If we enter through the narrow gate that leads to the Kingdom of God, taking that decisive step of faith, surrendering submitting our life to the Lordship of Jesus, here's the wonderful promise, He will receive you. And one day, when you die, or when He comes back, yes, He will take you to be with Him in glory. He's already preparing a place for you. And all those who commit their lives to Him. Listen, that's the message of the Old Testament. That's the message of the New Testament. That's the message of the entire Bible that our all-loving, gracious God has provided salvation for sinful people through His Son, Jesus Christ. And Jesus walked on the road to Emmaus that one day and looked at the Scriptures with His disciples and said, they testify about Me. All of it. May we know what it is to enter into the kingdom of God and enter into His glory when He comes for us because by the Spirit's help, we rightly handle the Word. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You that You have delivered this Word to us. That it is a straight path from Genesis to Revelation, even though we, we read those pages and we see that humanity takes all kinds of crooked paths along the way, the trajectory that You have written we see is a straight path that runs through Your Son. And through Him, back to fellowship with You. God, I would pray a couple of things. The first one I would pray, Father, is that You would protect this congregation from false teaching. Protect us from whether we receive that from others or we might be tempted to, to, to have wrong thinking and, and begin to proclaim something false on our own, Lord. Just protect us from the kinds of things that would derail us from the hope that we have in Christ. The centrality of the cross. Lord, would You, would you build us up in, in that strength and in that hope that, that we might be a people who rightly handle the Word the way that we live it. The way that we proclaim it. Lord, thank You that Your, your foundation stands. And Lord, I just pray that you would, you would just build up that foundation in the church. Not just this church, but Your church broadly, Lord. That the world would always be able to look to a place where the Word of God is, is heard and seen and displayed rightly. that that there would be a pathway to life amidst all of these corridors around us that lead to death. Father, thank You for providing that through Your Son. May we always, always, always remember Christ. May we always cut a straight path to the Gospel through Him. Thank You. Thank You for the Gospel. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.